what I've realized is that when you start creating for yourself, it's a completely different process than creating as a marketeer because you're not looking at the market. You're not looking at what people want, specifically not. You're looking at who you are and what you would like today and what in the, wouldn't it be cool if? And that's become our mantra, my mantra. It starts by, wouldn't it be cool if? Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. It takes a lot of guts to start any company, but to leave a prestigious position at a luxury watchmaking brand to start your own from scratch and with your name on the door, that takes something else. My guest today is Maximilian Busser, the founder, owner, and creative director of the luxury watch brand MBNF. The and F stands for and friends, which seems like just a bit of branding, but as you'll hear on this episode, it has genuine meaning. Raised in Switzerland without any family connections, Max joined the Swiss watch industry at exactly the wrong time, during the depths of the quartz crisis, when battery-powered watches were destroying the age-old mechanical watch industry. As Max will explain, he joined Jeger Lecoult as a young man and rose to prominence there, followed by years at Harry Winston Rare Timepieces, until he leapt out into the unknown and started his own enterprise. But he didn't want to just create the same old, same old. Instead, he was determined to make wild and inventive pieces that would shake the conservative world of watchmaking. He calls his watches orological machines. Today, fetching tens of thousands at a minimum, if you can get your hands on one, they can look like mid-century jet engines or steampunky gadgets that seem to break every rule. And as the ultimate sign of independence, he's based not in Switzerland, where his pieces are made, but in Dubai. I wanted to ask Max about his accidental career in this rarefied industry, how he was able to assemble his dream team of designers and engineers, his first ever chronograph, and what his take is on the surge in demand for mechanical luxury watches. I caught up with Max from his home office in Dubai. And, you know, like others in the watch world, like, you know, you have a a multicultural background from different countries. And what was it like growing up, you know, with a mother from Mumbai uh, in Switzerland? How did that shape you? It was... um... It was great and it was awkward. It was great because I think in, if you're born in the 60s, basically you would die wherever you were born, except if you had some sort of an adventurer family. And uh, because my dad was Swiss, but my mother was Indian, it sort of opened me up to the fact of traveling, seeing other parts of the world. And uh, it was normal for me that the world was what it is today, meaning something you can, you can go to. Uh, it was very awkward because... I looked like a little Swiss boy. I didn't speak Hindi. Uh, And whenever I was taken to India, which was probably once a year, at least my mom would would take me there as a kid. Uh, I would fall ill in the first two days. uh, And I hated (laughs) it there. And I just didn't feel Indian at all. So it was very difficult for me to, I had this sort of paradox that I'm proud of being half Indian, meaning half, half. But it was very difficult for me to to be that half Indian. Hmm. And was that, did you just, I mean, did you encounter anything in Switzerland that made it difficult or was it just kind of no, because, a, an omnipresent um, thing? No, because I just didn't look Indian. I mean, Switzerland in those days was a very racist place. I mean, if you were black or anything, it was a tough place for you. Uh, and uh, I didn't really look Indian, so I didn't have that issue. But I will remember one of my earliest souvenirs in Switzerland 
is when I had friends at home uh, playing with me uh, in, in the evening and my parents would go out for dinner and my mum would dress up in a sari. And I would always see my friend's jaw drop open. And my, my mum was absolutely stunning. And, uh, and when she would just waltz through in, in our pink and gold sari and these little Swiss boys next to me were like, what the hell just happened? So um, uh, that, that as a little boy, I'll always remember. Your first job, what was your first job in, in watchmaking like? Because I believe it was during the quartz crisis. I, I never expected to work in the watch industry. And what actually sparked this whole thing was that when I was 18, we're talking 1985, uh, my parents said, like probably as all Swiss parents at some point said, we want to give you a watch for your 18th birthday. And we're in the middle of the quartz era. It's watches, are com- nobody's talking about that anymore. It's a completely taboo subject because it's the, the whole industry has been wiped out. And um, I was like, okay, a watch. Now let's go and check out. They gave me a budget, which I remember was about $700, which was an enormous amount of money for them. And of course, for yeah. me. And um, and I went to trying watches around and asking people what they were wearing. And one day at university, the guy next to me, uh, I said, so what are you wearing? And he says, a Rolex. I'm like, what's a Rolex? I have no idea. And he starts explaining it to me. And <laughs> At some point, I was like, wait a minute, it's not quartz? He says, no. I was like, well, that's weird. Why would you want that antiquated? Let's not forget, sorry, I forgot to say that. I'm, uh, I did a microtechnology engineering. I did a master's in during five years. So I'm an engineer. And uh, so this is the first year, and we're all into engineering. And, uh, why the hell would that guy be wearing that antiquated piece of, of technology? And then I asked him the price, and it was seven times my budget. And I give him hell. I, I, I insult this poor guy. Like, how the hell could that even happen? But it just st- stayed in my mind. And I used to make all sorts of little jobs. I was a cinema usher in the evenings and give Matt's tuition during lunch breaks and sell hi-fi on the weekends. I had all sorts of jobs to try and make ends meet. And this guy was basically wearing one year of my salary. And um, But it, so it stayed with me. And I was like, why would anybody spend that sort of money? And in third year, we were allowed to do a project which was combining sociology and engineering. We could choose whatever we wanted. And I chose mechanical watchmaking. What are the reasons behind this industry still basically existing? Because it made no sense. And so I sent letters out. In those days, we sent letters. I sent letters out to... Audemars Piguet, Breguet, Jaeger Lecoultre, uh, um, Vacheron Constantin, um, uh, Mr. Gerald Chanter, and they all answered. These companies were so small and so on the brink of bankruptcy in those days that the CEOs basically answered me saying, if you come this day, I'll give you an hour. So here I am interviewing the CEOs of what are going to become the greatest watchmaking brands again of Switzerland. And um, they all told me the same thing. I said, you know, young man, we know what we're doing is pointless, but it's so beautiful. And it's the first time during my engineering studies, which pretty much depressed me, I will admit, um, that somebody talked about beauty. Remember, I wanted to be a designer and there I'd become an engineer. And I, I honestly hated it. And... Um, And the second thing they told me was, we know we're probably going to go bankrupt, but do you realize that it's a whole part of humanity which is going to disappear? Meaning there have been generations of mentors who've trained apprentices to do that angling of a bridge or that spiral Breguet curve, et cetera, et cetera. And even though I didn't understand half of what you were saying, it's like, 
that seemed incredible. He was talking about humanity. And I just fell in love with that, that world. I never expected to work in it. Fast forward 91, I'm skiing with some friends uh, in, in Verbier, in the, in, the, in the French Alps, Swiss Alps, sorry. And um, we stopped for a coffee at a, at a terrace. And there, there's the um, managing, now we call them CEOs. In those days, we used to call them managing directors of Jäger Lecoultre that I'd interviewed. Ah, oh, hello, how are you? Ah, oh, yeah, you remember me? Yeah, yeah, do you want to have a coffee with us? So we have a coffee with him. And um, during half an hour, he asked me what I'm going to do in life. And I was interviewing at Procter & Gamble and Nestle and one of these big uh, firms to try and get a, a job. And um, jokingly, at the end of the, the coffee, I said, well, if they don't give me a job, Mr. Belmont, you can always offer me a job. So he laughs, I laugh, and that's it. I'm just being a cocky young man. And um, and a week later, he has me called up and says, would you like to meet Mr. Belmont again in the in the factory? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I drive up to the Valley Jew, and it's the interview of my life. It's going to last three hours. During those three hours, Henri-Jean Belmont, the man who's going to, with Gunther Blumlein, save Jäger Le Coultre, uh, basically doesn't ask me a question. He sells me his dream. He sells me how he's going to try and save this company. And he takes me through the factory saying, look, it's all derelict, but we're going to invest here. We're going to do that. These are the products. They're not great, but we're going to create this and we're going to create that. And I was just like, in awe. <laughs> and at the end of the three hours, he just looks at me. He says, okay, I'm going to create a job for you. I'm like, sorry? He says, yeah, I need a, I need a product manager, somebody who's going to create products with me. I've just got so much on my plate. You're an engineer. You like watchmaking. You seem bright. Come on, join me. And I'm like, you know, sir, thank you very much, but I have to think about it. Uh, Nestle was like seven interviews. I was at the third. And he just looks at me and he says, you have to know one thing in your life. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be one amongst 200,000 people in a big corporation? Or do you want to be one amongst the three or four of us who are going to save this company? I was like, wow. And the next morning I called him and I said, okay, Henri-Jean Belmont is the man who's going to change my life. He's going to ma is the man who's going to save my life. He's going to give me a purpose, a family, an industry I love. And that was, uh, I owe everything to him. That was 1991. And what would, what did you work on as a product manager? Were there any, what sort of, you know, products and initiatives did you, did you embark on that, you know, you look back today and you learn, you know, you may feel that you learned a lesson from. Jäger Lecoultre in those days now was coming out of his umpteenth bankruptcy. We were a small team of crazy coots. Um, there was no money. There was no bling. There were no influencers. There was no nothing in our industry in general. And um, what I learned, first of all, I learned how to work because coming out of university, you have no idea. Um, I learned how... I learned. I had really strong ethics from my parents, and that reinforced it because Jaeger Lecoultre was an incredibly ethical company, giving great value for money. We were all engineers. We were all product creators. Everybody in the team was a product creator. Uh, there were no marketeers. We were completely useless in marketing. Uh, my my boss had uh, Henri John Belmont had fired the finance director. It was the first thing he'd done, and it's always stuck with me. Because he told me the first person you always fire when you come into a company is the finance director. I was like, why? He says, because he's the one who's always going to stop you trying to create something great. And, um, and so it was only we were all the time creating products. Now, half of them were probably the products we shouldn't have created. But it was all about creating, creating, creating. And um, I, I, the other thing I, I learned is that none of us were superstars. If you look at that initial team... 
of, of the early 90s, nobody's become a superstar. Most of them are still there, actually, which is incredible. They're just great people who worked wonderfully together. And, um, and that was another great, uh, many, many, many lessons. I, uh, I learned so much. I owe so much to that company. And, you know, at, at, at a certain point, you moved on to Harry Winston, which I would say, you know, as an American, you know, we think of jewelry, but, you know, first and beyond everything else. And, um, you know, what was that like? Why, why that change? And, and uh, did it feel like a natural transition or were you kind of nervous about? There, there was, um, I mean, was I nervous? It was, it was a landslide change for me. Um, it's. Uh, you have to imagine that I'd said no to every headhunter who'd contacted me in those days because they all wanted to give me the same job but just paid better. And I just, no, it was my family. And then one day, Egon Zender, who's one of those top three headhunters who only does chief executives, calls me and I'm still just the product manager. And um, they said, look, we, we've heard about you. We'd like to interview you. So I go and there. I'm curious. I'm a bit like a cat. And so I go down to Geneva and they interview me for an hour and a half and tell me, like you're way too young. I was 31, but you could probably do this job. I'm like, what are you talking about? So the head of Harry Winston timepieces, like his name was again, managing director. And I thought it was a joke. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, I can't do this. And they said, look, it seems to us that you could. Anyway, they're 40 candidates for the job. Just go and do the interviews. So, and that's something I actually tell a lot of youngsters when I do presentations in universities. It's like, you should actually go and do interviews when you don't think you've got a chance in hell, or even if you don't want the job. I'm sorry for the guys who are interviewing you, but it's, you're completely zen. So I go to all these interviews and I tell them exactly what I think, meaning it's appalling what they're doing and it's all wrong. And this is probably what they should be doing. And and I remember Mr. Winston, Ronald Winston, the son of Harry, who was the owner in those days, telling the headhunter that he'd rarely been challenged like that in his whole life <laughs> during that interview. And I was just being a, a, a well, a stupid youngster. And um, And they gave me the job. Now, what I didn't know was that the, the division, the watch division I inherited was really on the brink of bankruptcy. Uh, clearly, they hadn't advertised that. And what I didn't know was that like a week after I signed my contract with Harry Winston as the head of their watch division, Harry Winston, the brand, was put on sale because of all sorts of reasons I don't want to go into. Uh, and so the, the company in New York was in dire situation. And, um, and the company in Geneva I was supposedly managing was about to fold. So here I am, having done the first step of my career after Jaeger, going, what the hell is wrong with you? I mean, oh, how can you do such a massive error? And so I jump on a plane, go to New York, explain to my new bosses the extent of the disaster. And they, they acknowledge and they're very surprised. And they just look at me and say, well, young man, it's your disaster because we've got other things to deal with. So either you manage to save this entity or we bankrupt it. You can imagine that flight back to Geneva. Uh, so that's 1998. So was this your first... Uh, was this your first encounter with kind of like American business culture. Definitely. Because it sounds like a very American thing. Because, But on the other hand, coming back on that flight, as much as 
you felt a lot of responsibility, it also seemed like a green light for you to do whatever the hell you wanted to do. Is that true? And and I really am very grateful today to the, to Mr. Winston and Mr. Benvenuto who hired me in those days. Uh, they put me in 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 hell. They supported me uh, emotionally. They were like, "Yeah, we're with you." They didn't help me any other way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, without that, I would never have had the courage to create MBNF. So I am incredibly lucky in my life that I entered Jaeger when it was coming out barely of bankruptcy. I entered Harry Winston when it was going into bankruptcy. And that is the best learning curve ever to then become your own entrepreneur. Because if you enter a company when it's very big and working very well, you're not going to learn a, a thousandth of what I learned. So that was the beginning of Harry Winston. Um, it was, it was, it was tough to say the least. But we, it took us, I think, about eighteen months with my little team I'd inherited to more or less stabilize the company, and, and then then it was rock and roll. Then it was incredible. And you know, fast forwarding to the time when you launched MBNF, sort of like what spurred you to do so? Like what? Obviously, you, you know, you'd spent all this time reviving uh, this division at Harry Winston. Obviously, you could have just. You know, it was rock and roll. You could just coast. <laughs> what made you say, okay, you know, uh, and you were still, you know, young at that time to be doing something as radical as MBNF anyway. So um, how old were you when you started MBNF, by the way? So I was 38. So I did seven years at Jaeger, seven years at Winston. Um, when Winston started taking off, really, I mean, it was... I think we took the company from eight to eighty million dollars in in five years. We went from eight to eighty employees, and we created the Opus. I mean, we really put the the this beautiful jewelry brand on the watch map. I, I discovered two things: the first that I was actually capable of it. I had no idea I was capable. I had it in me, and the second I discovered, which was much more difficult to manage emotionally, was that the more the company grew, the more success it had the less I was enjoying myself. And I felt, um, I felt guilty. I feel guilty because I come from a family with no money. And here I am, I've got my face in newspapers, I'm making a lot of money, I'm very successful, people looking up at me. I should be happy. What sort of an ungrateful bastard am I that I am not happy? And then a lot of things happened. I often cite the, the most important for me, which was actually my dad passing away, which was on the uh, 31st of December, 2001. And um, I just got along with my life because I was, I was who I am and I, I just did whatever I had to do. And then a year later or two years later, I would look at any film where a son loses his dad even the Lion King, and I would start crying in front of the the movie, the television, and really sobbing. And clearly, something was unresolved there. And I decided to go into therapy, which for you in the US is pretty normal. For us in Switzerland, it's definitely not normal. And um, and so it was very interesting. It was it was a year and a half, and where we basically talked about regrets. And all the regrets I had of all the things we didn't do and didn't say to each other, and um, and at some point the the, the therapist said, "Okay, uh, we've we've talked about your dad. Now you come out of the f- session, you get hit by a bus, you've got two minutes to live. What other regrets would you have?" And I broke down during that session. 
I broke down and I realized I hated my life. I hated the man I'd become, professionally at least, and that um, the little creative boy had become a marketeer and that I'd always been creating watches at Jaeger Occult and at Harry Winston to please as many people as possible. So basically trying to please. And it was n very often not products I actually wouldn't even want to wear. And I realized I just been an abnegation of myself. So that was the first very important moment, the aha moment. And the second one was that my parents were probably the most honest and respectful people I've ever met. Uh, my mom was a, a, a Zoroastrian, a Parsi, where uh, it's the yeah. oldest monotheistic religion course, in history yeah, yeah. and uh, abides by simple, simple thoughts. It's basically good thoughts, good words, good deeds. That's what I heard growing up all the time. And that in business, it's incredibly difficult to keep that. And I'm sorry, I'm going to say in an American business, even much more difficult because the US dollar is so important and will basically annihilate any other thing. It's let's just make money. And I hated that. And, um, and so I just, I felt that I was betraying everything my parents had tried to bring me up with. Hence, I started having this fantasy, which was a little company which was going to be mine. So no shareholders, nobody to tell me more growth, more profit. That was not going to be on the table, where I was only going to be able to create what I believed in and where I was only going to be able to work with people who share the same values. So it was a complete fairy tale. It was insane. It, it couldn't work, especially as it didn't have enough money. And... Um, mm. And I went ahead and I did it. And uh, 2005. Did you need investors to do that? No, I, I, I didn't want any investors. And I knew I didn't have enough money. I had about $900,000 I'd put aside over all my years, which is a lot of money for any normal person. Yeah. yeah. But it also seems, it seems really low for like what, launching a, a, you know, a watch brand. <laughs> you need 10 times that. And usually you've got a 90% chance of failure. And, um, and I remember uh, it was... A, Funny anecdote. Uh, so I'd planned in to, to launch my company in 2006. And just after Basel Fair 2005, which was the big trade show where we took massive orders, like 18 months of orders, my new uh, management um, invited me to Miami for a seminar and gave me my new contract. And I remember my, my new boss telling me, I think you'll be happy. And I didn't even look at my contract because in my head, I was like, anyway, in a year, I'm away. And on the weekend, I sort of I have to read this thing. It's like, I'm sorry, but you guys, you have 25-page contracts in the US where we need like two pages in, in Switzerland. And so I've got this 25-page document and I'm trying to understand half of things I didn't understand. And at the last, it was stock options and wonderful, I mean, a really wonderful contract. And the last page, the last page, non-compete non-solicitation of the suppliers we'd work with and impossible to hire anybody from the team if I left. And clearly in my mind, in a year, I'm going to create a watch brand, which is going to work mostly with all the suppliers who I had basically brought together to create the Harry Winston watches. And of course, not at the beginning, but at some point I was going to take people from my team. It was my team I'd created from scratch. So here I am looking at that contract going, now what the hell am I going to do? And um, that was April. In May, I have a board meeting in New York. I go there 
and I tendered my resignation to everybody's shock. And I didn't have a backup plan because I knew that I didn't have enough money. I knew that I needed a minimum of another $700,000 just to be able to take off. And I had this crazy idea that maybe, just maybe, a certain amount of retailers in the world would believe in my crazy project and pay me one third in advance two years before I delivered. That has never happened in our industry. And <laughs> here I go. I tender my resignation, managed to get out on the 15th of July, 2005 to 25th of July, incorporate the company, which is just me in my flat but without a salary for the next two and a half years. And by November, I go around the world with my little suitcase because around the world, airplane tickets are much cheaper. And I, and, um, I go and see all my uh, Harry Winston retails, all the retails I'd opened at Harry Winston in those days. And, um, and I um, go and show them my drawings of my first crazy HM1. And um, if they were interested, it was like, oh, thank you very much. And would you agree to pay one third now? And I'll deliver in two years and um, I'll make it short because a long story, uh, actually six of them agreed and that brought me those $700,000 and that was the beginning of that whole insane story. And when you were going to these, uh, to these boutiques and, you know, these retailers who are going to pay you in advance, right? And because I want to kind of get get at for the people that don't know the brand or or who are in some other type of luxury or design, um, what was that elevator pitch like? Like you have sixty seconds to tell somebody like I'm creating a new company that's doing something totally radical, or maybe you didn't say that. I don't know. What was that elevator pitch like that you convinced them that said, this is exactly what the company is and this is what I want it to be? I am like the worst ever elevator pitch guy ever. Um, so that's why I'd actually planned two days wherever I went. First, because I would, uh, there were people I knew, of course, and I would sit down, explain the whole motivation of why, why I'm trying to create this company, why it's so important to me. It's not important to the watch industry. It was important to me. It, this is my, my story, my autobiography I'm starting now, that day. And, um, and what I had in mind was that for me, watchmaking is art. But then if it's art, why are 99.99% of all watches look the same? And my idea was to, deconstruct traditional watchmaking and reconstruct it into like a 3D kinetic art piece, which, oh, by the way, gives you time, but that's not the point. And there you go. And I showed the design of the first piece, which was already very crazy in those days. And, um, and then usually I would let them think over it and arrive the second day because the first day they weren't shell-shocked. And then the second day I would come back and say, so guys, have you thought about it? And, uh, and in six opportunities actually worked out of, I think, you know, 15 or 18 I, I, people I saw. And describe that first uh, machine for us like the very first piece that you produced? It, it, was, very, um, it was very intellectual. My first piece um, was, uh, it was, it was like two circles coming together. It was like an eight figure. And on one side was MB, Max Booster. My brand's called MBNF, Max Booster and Friends. So where Booster and Friends come together and the center, there's, there's a tourbillon, which is actually the regulator, it's the heart. And so where both worlds come together you 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 have energy you have life and i built it like a human being where like it was the movement was built like the lungs the heart the hands there was a whole philosophical process to it 
It was the first and last of my creation, which was so intellectual, because then I let go. Then afterwards, all my other pieces were very much gut feeling, coming in from basically a, more or less like a therapy. But the first one was very, very uh, intense. And um, because I thought in those days, that if you were going to sell a, a product, you needed to give it all the right rationale reasoning. And that was so wrong. Because we're 100% in an emotional product in high-end watchmaking. If you, when you see it, it doesn't kick you wherever it should kick you, then forget about it. Whatever I'm going to tell you makes no sense and no point. The product itself, when you see it, it has to generate that emotion. So afterwards, I just let my emotions flow. But the, that first one was so intellectual. And uh, to me, the one that stands out, I guess, the watch that kind of the first one that I can remember seeing in the industry and or in advertisements or whatever was uh, your number, your machine number four. It's kind of almost looks like, you know, like a jet airplane on your wrist. Um, first, can you explain why you why you call them an orological machine uh, rather than just a timepiece or why you use this term machine, which I find really fascinating. And then about this sort of number four and and kind of what the reaction was. So, um, perfect question. Actually, for me, it's not a timepiece because a timepiece is the word time. It's giving you time. So, yes, they do give you time. Yes, the watchmaking is incredible, but that's not the point. And I wanted to have a, a name which clearly said, this is not a watch. This is a sculpture. This is. I actually went to see uh, art galleries originally and say, this is a work of art. And they said, no, this is a watch. So then I went to see watch retailers and they said, this is a watch. And they said, no, this is not a watch. So <laughs> clearly I was somewhere in the middle. And that horological machine name sort of resonated. Um, then HM4, the Thunderbolt you're talking to of, is, is, a, is the seminal piece in our history. Um, so it, uh, actually, what most people don't know is that in 2007 and in 2009, we nearly went bankrupt. So... When in HM4 came out in 2010, I put every single cent we'd made into that insane piece of watchmaking. Now, unfortunately, I'm in an industry where it takes you between two and five years to create any movement. The simplest will be two, the more complicated will be four or five. And we'd been working on years on that piece. And at the same time, I was totally terrified. Nobody had ever dared create in my industry something so bold, so crazy. Would anybody be nuts enough to want to wear it? And hopefully they actually had the means. Because one thing is wanting to wear it. I was pretty sure that there would be some hundreds of crazy people like me. But they have got the means to spend $158,000 on it. That was way less of an evidence. And I was utterly terrified. So I remember presenting it at this Basel World Trade Fair to my retailers. In those days, we, all, we all went through, of course, retailers. And what I was scared of actually happened, meaning most of them just looked at me and went, okay, do you have something else new? Uh, no. <laughs> Thanks. 
okay, see you next year. And um, I needed to amortize that insane development to craft approximately and sell 100 pieces over four years, so about 25 pieces a year. And I remember taking about 12 pieces on order at the trade show and thinking, oh God, I've basically just survived two virtual bankruptcies to bankrupt my own company myself. And um, we launched the piece in, I'm going to say June that year. Now, a launch was just me sending 100 emails to 100 journalists saying, hey, it's Max, this is my new piece, this is the photo, and this is what it does. And um, and luckily, we had the internet. Oh, my God, MBNF would not exist without the internet. And um, and then, then, then a miracle happened. Suddenly, I mean, the blog started talking about it. There was no social media, of course. We're talking of 2010. And um, suddenly... Emails started coming in, phones ringing. Max, do you still have that weird airplane-looking watch? I'm like, yeah. Well, there's a guy in the store. He actually wants it. Like, okay. <laughs> and so, so for over four years, um, I don't think there was ever an HM4 in stock at any retailer. They were always on, on waiting list, and whenever they came, we managed to deliver. We took us. We managed to do more or less two pieces a month over four years, and they were all on waiting for on somebody's wrist. And that sort of liberated me because it was such an extreme piece of watchmaking and of, of watchmaking art. So I thought if people are ready to follow me there, they're probably ready to follow me somewhere else. And since then, I've I've been freed and creating. The weirdest ideas I have, there's always a tinge of apprehension. I have to, there's some pieces where I'm like, oh my gosh, now where am I going? And usually the pieces where I'm the most scared are those which are the best, the best sellers or the biggest successes. And those where I'm thinking there we should be okay is usually those which are less successful. So uh, over 17 years now, I've understood that I better just be scared and that's the best thing for my company. And uh, uh, that, that I think that probably goes for a lot of companies. And I was wondering if you could explain um, you know, to the listener, what is a development process like in basic terms? Uh, because you know, unlike a lot of other watch brands where they, you know, it's it's, they're more conservative. And so obviously they don't have to, you know, probably as much reinvent the wheel, <laughs> literally. Um, and so what is your process like for you sit down and you're like with your team and your friend, the friends of MBNF and you're like, okay, uh, we're going to do something totally crazy. It's going to look, it's going to be a watch that is shaped like X. You know, what is that process like now, now that you're, now that you're, you're in full swing? As, as a more mature company? So, of course, the, the, the company's evolved. I mean, it was all, me all alone in, in my flat. Then in year three, we were two. In year four, we were three. Now we're 38. And we've, in, we've got four fully-fledged R&D engineers developing all the movements in-house. Uh, we've got, of course, all the watchmakers. We've got the quality control. We've got, all the, we've got seven CNC machines. We craft a very big part of our components. This has all happened organically over 17 years. But the process has remained the same. Meaning, I have an idea. I'll give you an idea. Like um, to be HM10, the bulldog. 
I mean, okay. I have an idea of a watch which looks like a dog, <laughs> with where the jaws actually open and close, and there the power reserve indicator, which tells you how many hours the watch is wound up for. And you've got eyes, and you've got a brain, and you've got a body, and you've got legs. And people listening to me now are like, "This guy's on really weird drugs." And uh, I mean, it doesn't look. Like, I mean, for those who can't see, it doesn't actually look like a dog. But from its, if you look at it from its side, it looks like it has. A kind of a head, but not really. It's it's very it's very sci-fi. It reminds me of almost like um like one of those walking four-legged drones. Yep. Yeah. Way. I mean, it's interesting because most people, when they look at our piece, especially horological machines, they've got a they've got a, they make themselves an oh, it makes me think of never nobody ever says it makes me look think of a watch. It makes me think of this, that, the one, the other. So here I am. I have this idea. I sketch it. And then I sit down with Eric Giroux, who's the, the same independent designer I've been working with for the last 20 years, uh, who's one of my greatest friends. He's, the, he's my decoding machine of my, my sketches. He does that in Rhino in 3D. Uh, and we, we do the right design. When we're really happy with the design, we then do uh, 3D print iterations because, of course, it has to look great on the wrist, because one thing is looking on your screen in a, a multiple of 10. The other one is really looking on your wrist. One of our biggest challenges is whatever we do has to be comfortable on our wrists. And it's a very small item, a watch. So a lot of 3D prints, when we're finally happy, we sit down with the engineers and then they roll their eyes and they basically say, okay, we can try and do this, but maybe we're going to have to find different solutions or Maybe we'll have to modify some things. And then we, we work on iterations with them. And this is a this is a, um, an easy two to three year process. So it's incredibly frustrating as a creator. Incredibly frustrating. You have an idea and you're lucky if you see it four years later come to life. So you do the R&D. Um, of course, things have to be changed, not ideal. And then you sometimes the better ideas which are folded in because we've got incredible engineers who love creating also. So they bring in their ideas. And then we go into uh, prototypes where we solve, of course, prototypes never work the first time because what we do is incredibly uh, new and complicated each time. And then we do pre-series. Maybe we'll do a, a little edition of five debug that and then finally we can go into production now the production of a horological machine or a legacy machine an mbnf is anything between 12 and 18 months uh, you'll have between 350 and 580 components which are machined individually either by us or by artisans outside then they're hand finished all every single part that's we're one of the handful of watchmaking brands which still hand finish all our components, and then, of course, hand engraved, etc., etc. Then all these five, six hundred components arrive slowly, slowly. They trickle in into our workshops until we have everything. Until one is still missing, we can't do anything. And then when we have everything, then the watchmaker starts his work, which is basically Dr. Frankenstein. He assembles all the components over weeks, and at some point, he or she, because we've got lady watchmakers also, um, he, she, he or she will wind up the crown and the heart will start beating. And that's the end of a three, four, five year process. And that's when we can start delivering the first pieces to our customers. And, you know, for all of the pieces that you produce, is there, a, what, is there one that you consider 
in your own way, an entry level watch for MBNF? Is there like a is there a piece that you have on offer that you consider to be you know um, a taste of uh, for someone who might become you know one of your big clients? So uh, our entry level into MBNF is what is called the Legacy Machine One Hundred One. It's our, our simplest uh, legacy machine, and um, the issue is, I think we're on a ten-year waiting list. Um, now, not everybody who puts their name on the waiting list is actually serious, so you shouldn't relent. You should actually, if you really want one, you should contact one of our retailers or ourselves, and um, and there will be possibilities. But it's um, that's as I said, that's one of our <laughs> issues going forward. Is that is getting intrinsically difficult to get into the brand. Uh, actually, the best way to get in the brand now is is uh, if you don't own an MBNF, is probably to look at the pre-owned market and try and find one. And we're happy to service it and refurbish it and make it look as if it was new and give you a warranty and everything. But that's probably one of the better and easier ways to get into the brand today. What has happened to the in, to the this sort of luxury watch industry? I mean, for for the people that I speak to that are that are either in that world or they they watch it very closely, you know, they're describing, you know, you can't go into a a, a Rolex boutique and even find a watch. They're all gone. Like everything is sold out. You can't get anything. The demand has gone through the roof. Like, what do you think has happened? It's very simple. It took me years to understand because I was not even (laughs) understanding what was happening to us. I just thought, what is happening? And I think that the only reason I can, there are many, but the only real reason is that up till very recently, anybody who would buy an expensive mechanical watch was doing it by love. Even if he he or she was just trying to show off, it was by love because you knew that the moment you would want to sell it, you would lose your shirt and your pants. A bit like a car. I mean, up till very recently, you'd buy a Ferrari. And as soon as the Ferrari came out with the new model, you would lose 40 to 50% of your car. It was part of the deal. But you love that car and you're ready to, to accept to lose money. So it was love. Then, about two years ago, maybe a bit earlier for a few brands like Rolex, you started realizing that now because demand was higher than than production, you could buy that product and actually sell it for more or less the price you'd paid for it. Now, instead of one crazy nutter who was ready to lose his shirt, you you suddenly had at least five people who were like, you know what, I've got the means. I'll buy it, I'll wear it for two years, and I can sell it more or less than what I paid for. No risk. It multiplied by five the demand. And then, of course, nobody could scale up production. Nobody can in what we do scale up production in that levels. And then we started entering premium territory. So now you could buy that Rolex and resell it for double retail, triple retail. Now it's not one, it's not five, it's 25 guys who want that watch because it's an investment, because it's an asset. And those 20 additional guys are buying it for all the wrong reasons. They don't give a damn. They don't understand anything about it. They're just looking, I can flip it and make money. So uh, it, it, well, look, now we're, we're trying now to try and uh, increase our production by about 70 watches a year. So go from 
278 to about 350, and then the year after, maybe 420. But the demand is 15 to 20 times what we're making. So those 70 watches are dropped in the ocean, and I don't want my company to grow. Do you think that this is, you know, what goes up must come down? Do you think that this will balance itself? Or do you think that that we're, you know, that this sort of thrill and and value in the mechanical and the analog is is something that it's going to be with us for quite a while? It will have to go down. And I hope it goes down. I'm sorry. My colleagues are going to kill me hearing this Um, because it just is, is not sustainable. Do we want those 20 guys who want to flip? No, we don't want these guys. And when it's gonna, there's going to be a, a big dip, suddenly those who bought at three times retail who can only resell it at twice are going to say, whoa, I'm burned. I'm not touching this anymore. So I think that's going to evacuate all these guys. And if we can only stay with the five who actually love what we do and are happy to buy it and resell it more or less for, for retail value, it's still five times <laughs> the demand. And uh, that's why I still think that the demand is going to be enormous. But it's going to, I mean, a bit like the whole crypto thing. The, the guys who got burned massively, they're probably not going to go back into it. But only the guys who are really into it will continue. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm sure our industry will do incredibly well. But it has to come down a couple of notches because the demand is just stupid. And the other issue we're, we're facing is that now we as a brand, especially us with the values we carry, we want to make sure that the people who get our pieces are actually people who love them. So we suddenly start becoming detectives. And this is ridiculous. We're, we're starting to interview people, say, excuse me, who are you? <laughs> what, what have you done? What, what's, your, what's your watchmaking journey? Not, not what you've done in life, but what's your watchmaking journey? Do you actually love watches? And by seeing what they buy and the way they speak, we can realize, yes, he actually loves watchmaking. And he is good. we're going to send that piece to a nice home who's going to love our piece and not to some flipper who's going to immediately sell it for double retail. And that's, so we, that's some of the things we're living now, which we really don't like. And as, you know, for someone who is, I would say, you know, outside of the watchmaking system and they wanted to purchase um you know they are fascinated by watches and maybe they're not uh you know they're not a collector yet right and you you wanted to give them some advice on on purchasing a first real mechanical watch what would, what kind of what's your advice that you give people at dinner parties that inevitably ask you well first i don't know if i'm going to give an advice but a remark you're going to make errors the the watchmaking journey is filled with errors. But at the moment, it's not an error. If I look at the watches I've bought over the last 35 years, some of them I look back at them going, dude, what was wrong with you? But at the moment, it was exactly the watch I wanted. As a person, I've evolved. My tastes have evolved. Um, my, Of course, my watchmaking and I'm a creator, so I'm a very specific animal, of course. But it's the same thing for everybody. You will start somewhere and you will grow uh, and there's a, there's a parallel you need to make is you have to understand who you are first and what makes you tick what what's your trigger and from there there will be the right watch now if you're just about status and don't care about the movement 
the industry has got everything you want. <laughs> uh, if you're about incredible watchmaking and don't care about status, the industry has also got choices for you. And in the between of that, um, I've on purpose chose two complete uh, polarizations, you've got a whole spectrum. So maybe you will never get to be a real watch lover. Maybe it's only about showing that you've got money, which is fine. I'm not here to judge. So, and, and the industry has got everything you need for that. But if you really want to start learning, understanding, then you're, you're going to go through that incredible journey. And that's when usually you'll arrive at what is called the independence. That's us. Meaning the, the entities, which are small companies, which create not because there's a market, but because it's our calling and that's all we know how to do. And we're basically all writing our autobiography by our brands. And more importantly, we craft products the way products used to be crafted, meaning humanly, with love, with incredible integrity, passion, hand finishing. If you're into that, we've got it. If you're not into that, don't come and get one of our pieces because somebody else will really like, love it, Will should probably have it instead. And one of your new watches has been making a lot of headlines, which is a, a new chronograph. Can you explain a little bit about that and, and uh, what makes that so special? Well, the first thing which makes it special is Stephen McDonnell. Stephen McDonnell is... Uh, the only genius I've ever met in my life. I've met a lot of talented people. Stephen is a genius. He did theology at Oxford, never went to watchmaking school, and single-handedly created our Legacy Machine Perpetual Calendar over five years and our Legacy Machine Sequential Chronograph over five years. So 10 years of his life. And both calibers are absolute revolutions in the history of watchmaking. He is basically revolutionized, reinvented these complications. And how did he do that is because he taught himself watchmaking. So either through books or the internet, he wasn't taught by a professor who said, this is how it should be done. So he was trying to understand why are perpetual calendars made that way? Why are chronographs made that way? And he just didn't understand. And instead of saying, taking it for that's how it should, it just doesn't make sense. So I'm having dinner with him in 2016, and I just show I, I just bought a, a beautiful pocket watch split second chronograph from Tiffany's at auction and um, from the from the 1900s. And I was showing, I'm very proud of it. And he just ba barely acknowledges it. And I was a little bit miffed. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, honestly, chronographs make no sense. I mean, what do you mean? He said, look, and I'm trying not to be too technical, but every chronograph, when you, you start the stopwatch function, it drains so much energy from the movement that the performance, the precision of the movements goes down 20-30%. So at the moment you need your precision because it is a stopwatch, that's where your precision evaporates. I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do about it? He said, mm. Uh, I have an idea, but I'm not yet sure. A year later, he comes to see us. He lives in Belfast and he works all alone in Belfast in his home. And um, and he uh, he came with the design of this insane sequential chronograph where he had solved by himself the whole precision issue of chronographs. 
That's 250 years of issues. And he'd, he'd, he'd created a movement where when you start the stopwatch, there is no change in precision. And from there, he built four different functions. No chronograph has got more than one or two. Four completely different functions. One of them is a sequential chronograph, which has never been done on the same movement. It's spectacular. Yeah, 585 components. And... Um, and I am, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of Stephen. I'm in awe that I was so lucky that our paths crossed so that this perpetual calendar, this sequential chronograph exists. And uh, I think in our legacy at MBNF, what we will leave the watch world, those two calibers, thanks to Stephen, will probably make uh, a difference. And for a company such as yours, you said that you don't want to grow. Do you have like a, a five-year plan or a 10-year plan? Well, five year I have to because everything I, I do <laughs> take true. three, four, five years to do. So if I don't know what's going to come out in five years, it's not going to come out. But uh, that's an interesting question, actually. When I was growing up as a gawky, very uh, awkward youngster, I needed plans. I needed objectives. I needed uh, I needed goals to achieve. Now. At 55 and 17 years of MBNF, the thing I most enjoy is that I have no idea where the hell we're going, what wacky idea is going to come next, where I'm going to take the company, <laughs> right, left or center. And I love the fact that I have no clue where we're going. So whatever idea is going to come out in 10 minutes or in one year is probably going to change our company. And I don't know what it's going to be. So I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to, to finding out where we're going. Thank you to Max and to Kelly Downey for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Until next time.